Hello and welcome to the Food Report Argus podcast series on global crude oil markets. My name is Hai Gugarats. I'm associate editor at Argus Media and my stories and analysis cover the nexus of US energy and foreign policies. And I'm joined by senior reporter Chris Knight, whose coverage area includes US domestic energy policy and regulatory actions. So Chris, the first 100 days is a traditional benchmark to judge a new president's performance. And at that very least, in terms of enacting multi-trillion dollar bills and establishing new policies, Biden can count this as a strong start. Can you walk us through the major energy highlights of President Biden's first 100 days? Sure. And and there's a lot to cover. So bear with me as I, I go through uh, a lot of the action that's happened on energy in the past 100 days. Uh, we'll start with um, Biden's executive order. Uh, right out of the gate, he signed two major orders. Uh, the first one was on January 20th, and that was the one blocking the Keystone XL pipeline and ordering his administration to revisit almost every major Trump energy rule. And then a week later, he signed a sweeping executive order focused on climate change. And that also set some targets to achieve a zero carbon electricity sector by 2035. And then after that, um, he was trying to fulfill some more campaign promises. One of those was the oil and gas permitting freeze on federal land. That order went out also on January 20th, his first day in office. And that effectively um, halted uh, a lot of uh, ongoing permitting. It it required an elevated period of review. And it also froze uh, oil and gas leasing indefinitely. And just, uh, I think, last week, uh, the U.S. Interior Department released a a statement saying they were canceling lease sales through at least June. So that is one of the the big changes that we've seen under the Biden administration. Finally, uh, there's a lot of uh, Trump deregulation that the Biden administration stopped. Uh, there was a an oil lending measure that would encourage banks to uh, lend to oil and gas companies. Uh, they put that on hold. There was a uh, threshold for regulating greenhouse gases that would have effectively blocked EPA from regulating anything but power plants that was thrown out by a court or blocked in court. And there was also uh, some offshore oil decommissioning rules that were that were put on hold. And uh, finally, we're, we're, we're on the verge of uh, the U.S. Congress invalidating a uh, methane rollback that Trump imposed in his uh, in 2020. Uh, they're using a statute called the Congressional Review Act to disapprove that. Uh, so that'll that'll put they're basically on track to to in short order undo a lot of the Trump rollbacks and 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 start the work the the very exhaustive work of of putting new rules in place so in our first podcast chris after biden uh, became president we talked about how there was this really surprising reaction from the industry a reaction of surprise that biden as president meant uh, what he said as a candidate about climate so uh, 100 days later, I see this shift within the industry to accepting the premise of its policies and seemingly offering to cooperate by offering solutions that the industry once thought, uh, such as the carbon tax. So what's behind this shift in thinking and tactics? Yeah, this, this was surprising to watch as someone who's been covering a lot of these trade groups for, for almost you know 10 years. Um, you know, you, you you become accustomed to trade groups telling you their positions, and, and they don't change that often. You know that you can guess uh, 
when you go to a meeting with uh, industry groups or if you see them at a public hearing, they're, they're going to be kind of talking uh, about the same issues that have always been a priority. You know, oil and gas companies, they're always interested in expanding access to, to land to develop. They're, they want faster permitting. They want regulatory relief. And so it's been pretty surprising to see uh, the, the scale of the switch from many of the top industry groups. You know, now they're talking, you know, the, the biggest industry groups like the American Petroleum Institute are saying, you know, we support direct methane regulation now. We, we want to pursue a, a carbon tax. And, and a lot of these things were kind of uh, unthinkable for many years for these, for these groups. Um, I, I don't think, um, I'm not under any illusion uh, I don't think these oil groups are under, under any illusion that they can convince Biden to do uh, all the policies they, they would usually advocate for, but they know they've got a better shot at nudging the administration on, on policies they want to see if they are, you know, kind of speaking the same language. So, you know, if if the oil groups are saying, you know, we, we accept methane regulation, they might be have, have a little bit more pull with uh, the Biden administration to tell to tell them things like technical issues. So, like if um, uh, they visit well sites every three months, uh, they would advocate not to require inspections more often than that. Uh, so, th just just little things to try to get sway within this administration. And I, I can't tell you how, how sincerely many of these groups are about their their push on some of these new policies. Um, it's possibly that some folks are, are just taking positions that are that they see as cost-free. So, for example, if uh, if industry groups know with almost certainty that Congress isn't going to go for an economy-wide carbon tax, and uh, I think that's a pretty good bet, then it doesn't take that much risk to go out and say, we are in favor of a, of a carbon tax, um, just because you know it's not going to go forward. Same thing with methane regulations. You can say you're for it, but then when they come out, you can come out against a rule because it doesn't completely align with, with what you want to have happen. Yeah, so the U.S. energy industry should have some cause for optimism, at least, as, as the country's strong economic rebound and the progress on vaccination and the lifting on travel restrictions boosts fuel demand. Can you talk about some of Biden's initiatives on the stimulus and the ongoing discussions on, a, on his infrastructure bill? So uh, we already had... Uh, a big congressional push um, on a stimulus bill focused on COVID-19. Uh, the cost of that was $1.9 trillion, and it didn't really directly affect energy policy. But you know the, that scale of spending, the, the injection of money in the economy, and, and trying to roll out fast vaccinations, that changes the course of the economy. And that's, that's a, a, an important thing to watch for the energy sector. Biden has now moved on. He's got a $2.3 trillion infrastructure plan that would do everything from rebuilding roads to fund public transit to subsidizing manufacturing. It would uh, extend clean energy tax credits for many years. It would try to subsidize carbon capture. So those are uh, huge priorities. He's also got a separate plan that is focused on childcare and, and other issues that aren't really energy facing. Uh, the debate on that is ongoing, but uh, even moderate Democrats uh, that have been reluctant on, on some of these spending bills have said they want to see a big infrastructure bill, and I don't think they are going to give that up easily. I've got some questions for you, Hike. U.S. producers are, are part of a global energy market, and their European peers have not only talked the talk, 
but they've also announced major corporate transformations to change their energy policies. Uh, the U.S. administration is playing catch up on, on climate change after four years of Trump. Could you talk about Biden's climate summit that happened uh, earlier this month and broadly, how does uh, climate and energy transition feature in U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, so it shouldn't come as a surprise that Biden uh, chose to prioritize climate change in his first major foreign policy initiative. Uh, this is, after all, a global challenge. Also, getting other countries to match what Biden wants to accomplish here in the United States would address criticism that emerging economies, where energy demand is still growing strongly, especially China and India, would gain a competitive edge if the U.S. moves too quickly to achieve net zero emissions. And the key takeaway from the climate summit was actually the U.S. own uh, big news that the White House made with a plan to reduce U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52 percent from a 2005 base year by the year 2030. You've talked about Biden's policies uh, just now. So uh, these uh, numbers are the net total of what they amount to in emission terms, the so-called nationally determined contribution. This target doesn't specify any sector by sector emission cuts. As the White House says, there are multiple paths to reducing U.S. emissions. We know that uh, President Biden has talked about eliminating greenhouse gas emissions from the electricity sector by 2035, and he supports setting more aggressive fuel economy and tailpipe CO2 standards for new cars and trucks. If you watched Biden's first address to Congress, he stressed that other countries are following the U.S. lead on this climate initiative. The U.K. at the climate summit made perhaps the most ambitious emission cut announcements. Then came the EU, Japan and Canada. And even Chinese President Xi Jinping for the first time talked about limiting China's coal use after 2026 and phasing it out after 2031, even though he did not offer concrete commitments. All of this uh, previews the UN climate change conference scheduled to take place in Glasgow uh, later this year. And one final point on this, and this may or may not have been intentional, but the summit itself showed that the US is back in business of international diplomacy. Biden talked about re-engaging with the world when he became president, and here's a virtual forum that was able to get 40 global leaders together, including some with whom the United States does not get along on any other issue. If you remember, the Trump administration last year uh, did not hold a G7 leaders forum, even in a virtual format, and all of them were closest U.S. allies. When Biden became president, a lot of people expected there'd be some fast action on the Iran nuclear deal and that country's return to oil markets. How is that looking 100 days in? And uh, broadly, what can you tell us about what the Biden administration is looking to do to adjust sanctions? There was early on a mismatch in expectations held by Tehran and Washington on how to revive the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. This acronym, JCPOA, five letters, you know, it's, we'll hear a lot in connection with oil markets later this year. Domestic politics is certainly complex in Iran, just as it is in the United States. The Biden administration has made, by all accounts, an offering good faith to lift U.S. sanctions against Iran if Tehran resumes compliance with restrictions on its nuclear program. But both countries sort of expected the other one to make the first move. Um, now, after some back and forth, U.S. and Iran are actually negotiating. Finally, they are uh, doing so indirectly through uh, European and other intermediaries, but at least 
uh, we are discussing on how to accomplish the lifting of sanctions and Iran's return to compliance. Uh, that's taking place in Vienna. Um, and after this negotiation started, surprisingly or not, all participants have called them productive. And even Iranian negotiators now sound a lot more optimistic than their U.S. counterparts. Iran's president, uh, Hassan Rouhani, suggested that 70% of issues have been resolved. If you ask U.S. negotiators, they will say that they are not halfway done. But the general thrust is that things are moving along. Um, there is a big bucket of sanctions that uh, were imposed under former President Trump in 2018 and 2019, and uh, they include terrorism designations against Iran's central bank, its state-owned oil company, and the United States has said that it can lift any sanctions that would go against the promise in the JCPOA to reintegrate Iran into international trade and finance. Tehran wants all of those sanctions to come off. And, you know, that is not something that either the Biden administration or any other U.S. administration will do so long as Washington views Tehran as hostile towards its interest in the Middle East. But there is more urgency to make progress on these issues now than in the beginning of Biden's term, because there is realization that external circumstances can get worse. Just in the past month, we have seen attacks from Yemen against Saudi oil installation, sabotage against Iranian nuclear facilities. A U.S. Navy vessel for the first time in four years fired warning shots against Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps uh, vessel off the Midas Gulf. Iran will hold its presidential election in June. So there is this a sense of urgency that is contributing to the talks moving along. And broadly on sanctions, Democrats and Republicans in the White House have used sanctions as a tool. I think uh, the Biden administration has come in and they don't want to make big changes to the program, but they are doing a major review of programs, not only against Iran, but also every other major producer that has been affected by U.S. sanction. There is a sense that the United States needs to fine-tune how it's sanctioning other countries and that re review will con conclude sometime later this year. And, and uh, with that, we have come to the end of this podcast. You can find our stories and more in-depth coverage of politics and policy and geopolitical news and insights as it specifically relates to oil markets in both Argus America's crude and petroleum Argus. You can find more information on both services at www.argusmedia.com. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you'll join us on the next episode of The Crude Report.